0: My uncle always told me, this computer, you know, if it wasn't for Bill Gates, we we wouldn't be using this. And I'm like, who's Bill Gates? He's the richest man alive. This is the guy, (laughs) right? So I'm thinking myself, this, you know, this one day I remember I'm on the bus going to school. I'm like, and there were like 30 people in the bus. I'm like, could Bill Gates pay for the bus? Like, could he pay for my transport and for everybody here? Hmm, Maybe not.
1: Njavu Mutambo is the CEO of Musanga Logistics, a delivery company in Lusaka, the capital city of Zambia. Technology has the potential to transform economies in Africa, empower small business, lower costs. But before any of that can happen, there are some basic challenges. One of those is the cost of delivery. That's where Njavwa and Musanga Logistics come in. He's using bicycle couriers and people who own trucks and need side work, Uber-style, to connect people in Zambia like it's never been done before. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast, rich ideas and powerful people. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to do that, but there are all kinds of great ways. Mainly, what I want you to do, subscribe, so this thing gets to you automatically. It's one less thing to think about. Also, get a little closer. Subscribe to the Fort Knox YouTube channel at fortknox.com YouTube. There you'll find videos of some of my favorite moments from these podcast interviews, including this episode. Njava Mutambo is by far the youngest guest I've ever had on the Fort Knox podcast. I met him by chance during a visit to Silicon Valley this summer. I was giving a talk at a venture capital firm, Goodwater, and he was there. He asked me about coverage of African startups, why there wasn't more of it. He told me what he was doing, and I just had to hear more. And that's really a big part of what Fort Knox is all about. That's why it's rich ideas and powerful people. Whenever I can talk to somebody who's doing something extraordinary that shifts the way I think about business, achievement, making the world better, I want to bring you that. So I invited Njavo to CNBC's bureau at One Market Street in San Francisco, and he described his vision for bringing more sophisticated e-commerce to the African continent, his path from impoverished orphan to tech entrepreneur, and what he learned from seeing Silicon Valley and America up close for the very first time. Here's Injava Mutambo.
0: So Musanga Logistics, uh, the company that we run, is a platform that connects users that need to send packages to independent couriers that can deliver them. And this really stemmed out of the need. If you look at many African countries, The Economist actually states that um, in a recent article that the cost of retail products Transportation accounts for over 70% of the cost of retail products. And that presents a huge, huge problem, especially when Transportation. Transportation, especially because of...
1: More than 70% of the cost.
0: Wow. Yeah. You know, when you're landlocked with virtually um, very little transport infrastructure, it gets very expensive. And, you know, obviously, transport infrastructure is one of the big problems, but also just the under under usage of, of current infrastructure. So we have vans or trucks that are moving nearly empty simply because of time. And we saw this as a huge potential and we looked, you know, we did our research and we found that this is actually a prevailing trend in many African cities. And you know, we saw that problem and said this is probably one of the main reasons why e-commerce hasn't taken off because if you, wanna, if you buy something online, you expect to get it in time. Right. Right? And solving this problem for over 600 million people is something that is part of the reason why we started it.
1: So you say e-commerce hasn't taken off yet. At all? Or are people buying some things but not others? To what extent is it working?
0: So we do have a few e-commerce companies that have either, you know, set up their own logistics systems internally, obviously increasing their cost dramatically. But the potential of Africa's e-commerce hasn't been realized yet. And you know, if you look everywhere, we have so many people um, that are either selling out of their, um, their house and, you know, set up a small store. The potential for e-commerce in Africa could help with jobs, it could help with so many other things, but because of these two, especially transportation and payments, we haven't really tapped into the e-commerce potential of Africa yet. Brief history of Zambia and the kind of the geography. You have that correct, you know, in the center of Southern Africa, landlocked country, you know, surrounded by um, over 250 million people in total. Um, we are relatively small compared to our neighbors. We have a population of 15 million people. Um, we are, you know, very small economy. I think over 21 billion. Dollars, so that's market, market cap for most of the startups in Silicon <laughs> Valley. <laughs> right,
1: right,
0: yeah. um, we are primarily dependent on copper. So we're one of the largest copper producers in the world. Um, if you're a schoolboy in Zambia like I was, what what you'll what be learning about Zambia is how we were colonized by uh, the United Kingdom in 1964. We gained our independence. Um, and we've slowly grown, and we've had successful political transitions since. So we're making our development. Um, we're also located. Uh, we have a very, very um, unique position in the sense that we are located in the center, which presents opportunities to be a hub mm. for the rest of the region. Right. So in that sense, we are, you know, obviously working towards getting that as a as a country.
1: So it's a it's a good place for a logistics operation. It to is start. a
0: good place to start because you you get a good sense of what's going on in the environment.
1: What would you say characterizes Zambia differently from the countries around it?
0: Number one, the peace. We've never had, um, we've never had a war in our country. We're a very, very peaceful country, very peaceful people, actually. Um, we've, I, th- I think if there's anything that stands out about our country is the fact that we're, we're a peaceful country. It's the one thing that comes to mind. And also, we are a Christian nation. We are one of the few countries that has actually put it in the Constitution that we're a Christian nation. So mm. that, again, in itself is very
1: unique. The, the way, one of the various ways that the colonial period affected the African continent, borders, country borders, were kind of drawn without regard for who the people actually were and, and where... Um, the history of the people groups had really come from. Why do you think Zambia has turned out so differently in terms of um, the culture of the place, the, the history of peace, based on, you know, the way the way the continent was carved up?
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't know if this is true, but there's a myth that um, <laughs> when there was war in the south, war in the east, war in the west, and war in the north, all the guys that didn't want to fight <laughs> came <laughs> came to the center, came to Zambia, so maybe <laughs> maybe it comes from our forefathers, I don't know. but <laughs> Maybe that's why, you know, there might be some truth in that, but you know, we're very relatively peaceful people and um, I think partly because of that, you know, because of that geography and um, where we're located and, you know, the people who didn't want to fight come into the center. <laughs>
1: When did you first become aware of Silicon Valley?
0: Um, this must have been very recent actually, maybe 20, 2012. Okay. I know I knew about the companies in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, but the, you know just the place in itself about 2012 and I was excited by the whole concept of people starting companies, getting funded, 19-year-old billionaires, <laughs> I mean we don't even have 50-year-old billionaires, so it's like <laughs> Like, wow, you know, this is definitely um, an amazing place.
1: That's interesting. I never thought about it that way before. So when did you first become aware of the concept of Hollywood? Hollywood? Yeah. Very
0: early on. Uh, Hollywood very early on because of, obviously, the movies that we watched, the music we listened to, you you know, the entertainment side of things, you know, we get on very, very early on. But, you know, after high school when, you know, you, for me picking my career, and understanding that I really wanted to be an entrepreneur and, you know, getting excited with the concept of, you know, becoming an entrepreneur. I knew I wanted to do something that's going to be on a global scale, Mm. and I started looking for the best, right? Um, What made you want to have a global impact? Well, first and foremost, because there's nothing that could stop us, right? Um, You know, I think Africa is in desperate need of successful dreamers. Mm. Um, That that really revolutionize the way that we, as a continent, are going to operate. Um, that in itself, you know, the main reason why even just the vision from Musanga is to transform the way that people view African startups. If they mm-hmm. see one Zambian startup that goes global, the possibility of, you know, the mindset shifts, because now they'll be like, that guy can do it. I can do it.
1: And you, re- you represent the first real post-colonial generation of entrepreneurs, right?
0: Yeah, that is correct. My mom was born before independence. My mom was born before independence. And my grandma, you know, she narrates the stories of how she she navigated um, colonism. And it's very interesting to see that I'm extremely lucky, you know, the fact that I was born post, I have the freedom to be free mm. in that sense.
1: What are some of the stories that you heard growing up, kind of the family legacy of what, say, your grandmother went through?
0: Yeah. So obviously things like standing in different lines mm-hmm. from, from the British, standing in different lines from the British, going to different schools, you know, getting on different kind of buses. Those are things that I heard of. And when I was young, I would hear those stories. And I didn't re- really realize the impact that it had on my grandma, because <coughs> you know, the way that she viewed the rest of the world, the way that she viewed people who weren't of the same skin was different from the way I view them, right? In For what way? because she grew up in the sense where they were the masters, Uh-huh. right? For me, it wasn't the case. So I know, I know different. So I have a very, very unique story in the sense that um, I lived with, um, when I was three, my father passed away. Mm. And um, so I lived with my mom, and her mom and when I was seven my mom passed away and uh, so I was uh, my mom's sister took, took care of me. So I lived in a middle to low income um, neighborhood with my mom and my grandma but then when my mom passed away I, I moved to a sort of high net worth neighborhood in Lusaka, Zambia and going to school. Because? Um, because firstly my grandma on her own couldn't take care of me so my, my mom's sister Decided to to take care of me, and I was seven years old. So you know, I switched schools. I went to a different neighborhood. And she
1: lived in that neighborhood. Yeah, she lived.
0: Yeah, my mom's sister. She she lived in a different neighborhood, um, kind of wealthy neighborhood. So
1: what was her what was her background that that she lived there? um, I think you'd live somewhere else. You know,
0: just the fact that her and her husband were both educated. You know, um, my my mom my my mom's sister. was (coughs) a medical practitioner so uh, we different opportunities so you know she had a better paying job we're very lucky in the sense that when I was seven I moved there so you know I got from it suddenly my world shifted because suddenly I'm going to different school where I'm really exposed to people from all over the country who've Mm -hmm. come in you know and bring different perspective going to school with some of the wealthiest people's kids And now I'm really seeing. Okay, this is a different life from what I'm accustomed to, you know. What was different? Firstly, you know, just the way that the parents treated the kids was different from, you know, in the um, high-net-worth neighborhood compared to the low-income neighborhood, you know, there was more of a family orientation in in the suburbs, right? Mm -hmm. And I noticed that, and it was just kind of like, huh.
1: Okay. Talking to their kids more like adults or... Yeah, like, you know. okay,
0: so you guys hang out, right? <laughs> right? You guys hang out quite a lot. Um, you know, obviously, the toys were bigger, You're you right. know. <laughs> and, you know, that really, for me, was like, okay, that wasn't my reality. Now I can, now I can shoot big. I can, I can try to be this guy's dad, mm. right? And I didn't see that you know, for the longest time, especially in low in, income, because you don't, you, you need a role model when you're a kid. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of moving to that new neighborhood
1: gave me um, a role model. Where does technology first start to come into the picture? What's the, what's the first uh, device that you come into contact with, yeah. um, whether it's internet connected or, or something else that makes you go, wow, what what else could I do with this?
0: Yeah. Okay, so... Moving on to the to to this high income to my auntie's house, you know her kids had PlayStation, <laughs> right? And like it was really like a no-brainer for me. I'm like, this is where I have to be, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, um, but like when I really started to engage with technology it was obviously you know they had a computer, which mm. was for me I spent most of my time on that computer, and you know I was. 9 or 10 and like I was playing games most of the times but
1: what kind of computer and what games
0: It was an IBM and this is where because my my her husband was um a computer engineer ah, right uh-huh. so I was playing c- computer games so he had an IBM quite quite a number of them IBM um really big old machine and um I'd play uh Age of Empires and mm. just random games and um I really started to find ways that I can, you know, use it for different things. So I tried to make music with this thing, because I was grounded most of the time, so I had no option. <laughs> Why <laughs> were to say, you
1: grounded most of the time?
0: Let's just say I came home at my own time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> because you were interested in
0: No, just, you know, again, you know, I was really just, like. The things were so exciting, you know, this yeah. everything was just so exciting and right.
1: new friends. New friends. New possibilities. New,
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, this neighborhood's cool. Let me try to see the other neighborhood. Right. You know, and you know, just really causing a little bit of a problem for people back at home. <laughs>
1: and that causes you to bond with the computer because you're you're
0: grounded. Because I'm grounded. So yeah. I'm forced to read more. I'm forced to um you know you know, just interact with the computer more. And you know what's so funny, you know, I used to Somebody, you know, my uncle always told me, this computer, you know, if it wasn't for Bill Gates, we, we wouldn't be using this. And I'm like, who's Bill Gates? He's the richest man alive. This is the <laughs> guy, right? So right. I'm thinking myself, this, you know, this one day I remember I'm on the bus going to school. I'm like, and there were like 30 people in the bus. I'm like, could Bill Gates pay for the bus? Like, Could he pay for my transport and for everybody here? Hmm, maybe not. I don't, think he has, <laughs> I don't think he has that kind of money. You know, I didn't re- right. re- realize, I'm just thinking. Maybe not, maybe for five of us or for, you know, but <laughs> I just, you know, thinking about that now, just thinking about how, you know, from, from an early age, um, coming to interact with uh, technology.
1: What was it five years ago that brought Silicon Valley as a place into your consciousness?
0: Okay, so I'm done with high school now, and um, I know early on that, you know, because I was selling stuff in school already, you know, I was- like. Well, I was trading phones. I I had to hustle just just, just so I can live like the normal kid. Right, right? <laughs> right. Because now I'm in a different neighborhood and bear in mind my parents didn't spoil me. So like if you need something, you have to go and get it. Alright. So right.
1: that's probably how they came up and why they yeah. ended up living there, right?
0: Exactly. Right. So they really give give gave me the, the freedom first and foremost to to go and 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 you know, pursue what I want to pursue as long as it's in the limits of the law. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, early 2013. If, I, mm-hmm. if I'm very, very honest, I I go, um, I start start a business, right? I, I start a, a small business selling popcorn, like thinking If I have 100 popcorn machines, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be a millionaire. Uh, little did I know, it's very hard to scale a popcorn business. Um, <laughs> so I begin to read more. I begin to attend networking events, and I meet this guy named Matthew Gronak, He's an American. Living in Zambia. Hmm. And, you know, he had this happy hour where entrepreneurs met. I walked in there. I was the What's young.
1: he doing in Zambia?
0: So he was a Peace Corps volunteer uh-huh. and now he's married to a Zambian lady. Uh-huh. Um, he went to Stanford here. His wife went to Stanford here as well. And so they the settled back in Zambia. Doing. Um, so at the time he was a chief operating officer of one of Zambia's largest data um, companies. So hmm. he, he, he's a tech guy. Okay. Right? And, you know, I meet him up and he has this networking event that he does you know, aside from his job. So he's got a full-time job and he does this. So I say, hey, is there any way I can help? You know, really just trying to get increase my network. Is there any way I can help? And so I I start to hang out with him a lot more. And, you know, he's really t- share, sharing his stories about Stanford. I'm like, okay, you know, recommending books. Because I could read quite a lot of books, but looking back at it now, the, just saying the same thing. So all these books that say, believe in yourself. You know, think <laughs> big. I mean, those are really good books, but then like, he really just showed me the different side of things, you know, introduce me a new kind of uh, material to read. and Like? Um, like the first book was uh, Good to Great by Jim mm. Collins, and I'm like, man, right? You know, just understanding the principles of that, uh, the lean startup, and then... Um, These ap-
1: are the books that Silicon Valley CEOs and entrepreneurs are reading.
0: Exactly, right? Okay. Um, so reading those kinds of books, and then he introduced me to Zambia's incubation hub called Bongo Hive. It's Zambia's first technology incubation hub. And I was fascinated by it because you go there and, you know, there are all these people making apps. I mean, like, it was, the concept of apps is fairly new to date in Zambia, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, these guys are making apps. I'm like, this is pretty cool. I mean, I'm, I'm selling popcorn, so I'm like, I, <laughs> I'm not telling these guys what I do, you know? I'm like, I'm, I'm going to keep this a secret. <laughs> and, you know, I've got all of these developers who are making apps and you know they're making these things that they're not really selling um some of them were, but like I saw okay, this is definitely something that could be sold because I was looking at it from a commercial perspective, like seeing how we can scale this what are consumers really thinking about these products so I really started to hang out at the bongo hive a little bit more, and you know after two or three years um their failed startups you know I failed quite quite a lot Doing I th- what so that we we had um started an online magazine called Enterprise Zone which flanked. Um, because? Because I didn't know what I was doing.
1: That's, <laughs> that's the truth. You okay. know? I
0: didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what a business plan was. I didn't, know, I didn't know how to just launch the minimum viable product. All of those things that just weren't in place. And so, you know, having, you know, going to the more and more and more events, meeting more successful entrepreneurs within um, the community, you know, and getting that mentorship it was really just a mind opener. And so around 2015, the idea, you know, we started flirting with the idea of how can, we make, um, how can we make the city more mobile? How can we, you know, more accessible? You know, started off so it started off with food delivery. You know, a friend and, and I were working late and he really wanted to eat, he wanted food. Um, but, you know, at the time, the only places that could deliver food were pizza places and he had enough of pizza. <laughs> so it was like, why? why is it so hard to get things and so the same night we came up with the idea I said "Let you be my business partner you know I'll make the I'll, I'll develop the app you go and sell okay. somewhere in here you learned how to code well I didn't have to okay. cause I had a partner okay who could uh, develop um, an app right who you
1: had met through Bongo Hive? through
0: Bongo Hive okay yeah. so he you know in the same night we came up with a name he called his younger brother who was a um, graphics designer to create a logo and literally the next morning because we used to do overnights so, you know working late uh, at the hive and just sleep there you know if we would sleep at all the next morning we had this website with a landing page and so the next day my job was to go and sign up two restaurants at least so we can start to uh, test it out and that's how Musanga started we signed up one restaurant and then another and then started testing on customers, and, and we found that, okay, customers actually don't want food delivered as much. So we started saying, okay, now we're doing this. Because I said, okay, if we're doing it, might as well do it. Right? So
1: why didn't people didn't want food delivered? Well... Because people were cooking at home and they weren't ordering food all the time? Or why, why didn't people want... I mean, it, seem, it seems like something everybody wants. Doesn't right? everybody want food delivered?
0: Exactly. But, you know, if you haven't had food, most of the people who used us, it was the first delivery service they'd ever used in their lives. Mm. So it's like... Okay. Firstly, I don't want to pay extra, right?
1: Right. Seventy percent <laughs> of the cost of the item is the delivery, and I yeah. don't want it, right. So
0: you buy food for let's say five dollars, and you pay thirty dollars for a delivery. No, like three dollars for a delivery. It's right. Probably like now I just walk there. Yeah. Right. I don't. I'm not earning that much anyway, so I might as well just walk there. So you know, we started to do deliveries on behalf of restaurants, and then you know, another thing led to another.
1: And then what is the first thing you branch off into besides food?
0: So, food deliveries are kicking off, um, but then internally in the company, firstly, we're, you know, we are um, facing um, a dilemma, what direction are we headed? Because at that point in time, I'm like, okay, it's all or nothing for me. This is, this is it. I think this is a good idea. I'm going to run with it. And we, we then have um, founder issues in the business, right, where, you know, a few things happen here and there.
1: Like... What, well, your like the direction of the yeah. business
0: was different from what, um, the f- you know, we're going different ways and obviously at the time we still had full-time gigs, or well, I had to quit mine, but he still had something which was very successful and so, you know, the excitement of the early days kind of faded, now it's like, okay, I have to go back to the thing that makes me money and, you know, so that another thing led to another, we had to part ways, but f- so for a few months it was like, okay, I re- I really, I'm really, you know, stimulated by the whole concept of how can we get people to on-demand, you know, get products on-demand, mm-hmm. and I knew I didn't want to do food at the time, right, because f- the food delivery space at the time hasn't hadn't developed to a point where it could make a sustainable business. Right. So because of the requests that we got from the restaurants we worked with, I would say, okay, um, yeah, the food, the distribution, you know, my customers are not really using, the delivery service but I need you to get something for me (laughs) please go get me um, cooking oil go get me my supplies we started seeing a different aspect of it like okay instead of us trying to advertise to their customers we're going to get more and more businesses that use us to you know either get get stuff for them um, or make special requests so we started signing up more more and more companies like that so you know if I look at it now most of our customers are apparel customers you know um, whether it's boutiques or online boutiques they basically you know um, we source the products bring them to the stores and now we distribute the products to the customers what makes us different from all our competitors is the fact that we use independent couriers to do deliveries mm. right we have people who own bicycles, who own vans, light trucks, who can sign up on our platform and do deliveries, so we can scale up in, in markets quicker than um, quicker than most, and then that allows us to obviously have um, lower lower costs mm-hmm. that we then pass on to our customers.
1: Who's your fastest bike courier?
0: Who's our fastest bike courier? Yeah. So um, interesting. Um, we have, you know, about a couple of months back, um, I met. Um, A guy who owns a bicycle manufacturing company in in the country and we're trying to partner and he was telling me how um, Zambia's Africa's champion in Africa cyclist champion work is Zambian and he he works for him. So I said, wow, I'd like to meet the guy, right? (laughs) And so I, I meet the guy and he's pumping tires. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. You're a champion in my mind, right? Right. And so I invite the guy down to um, the office and we're having a conversation and he tells me how he's so passionate about it. And he can, you know, he does c- over a hundred kilometers, right, in the shortest period of the time. And I'm like, what are you doing, you know? Pumping tires? tires. And it's like out of, when, it's no, when you're not competing, you're broke and you still need to eat, right? I love to say, like, I want to take this, I want to be the world champion. But I don't have the platform for it. You know, he comes from um, one, of, one of the worst slums in, 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 in Lusaka. And he has to take care of his family. And I, I can imagine he has to take care of his parents, his parents' parents, which is the case for a lot of young people. Yeah. So we said, come on board. And he brought quite a number of people, Current number of cyclists like him. And so if I look at today, cyclists on our platform are earning about $150, which is a jump. Considering that the majority of people are living under two dollars a day,
1: wow, right? under two dollars a day, and they're earning one hundred fifty dollars on average. Our cyclists are yes, per per
0: year or no per month per month. Yeah. Wow, and it, it could be more if they put in more. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we're definitely you know that's the other side of things that when you're doing business in, in Zambia and in Africa in particular, there's a concept called African capitalism, which was coined by a mentor, Tony mm-hmm. Lumilu um that basically states that you know um for africa to succeed the private sector you know by creating jobs in the private sector um by by being a responsible company where you're fiercely competitive you later on um you create social change because now you're creating jobs right right? africa africa is in desperate need of jobs africa is in desperate need of entrepreneurs and that's you know, the fact that we are enabling people just as simple as a bicycle and a smartphone, you could change your life. That in itself is, we're, we're very passionate about that and it gets us going.
1: So, how old are you now? I am 22. And at 22, you are in San Francisco. San Mateo, Silicon Valley. How did you end up here?
0: (laughs) Oh, man, I think, you know, um, firstly, I'm extremely lucky. Yeah. Um, Somewhere, somehow, something (laughs) aligned, uh, and I am extremely lucky. So, um, it's going to go back to Barack Obama. Okay. It goes to Barack Obama. (laughs) Tell me how it goes (laughs) back to Barack Obama. we're going to Barack Obama now. So, about five, six years ago, he started this thing called the Mandela Washington Fellows hmm. so obviously we know Mandela is he's a hero to a lot of young Africans he's a hero to everybody yeah right to a lot of people and um, you know the whole concept is that Africa is in desperate need for for new kind of leaders for people who are not only show the compassion that Mandela showed but also just the leadership ability so he started this program called the Mandela Washington Fellows that brings um, some of Africa's best leaders um, to the United States and vice versa I believe that there's some who some Americans who go to Africa and it's a basic exchange program where you know you get to learn and increase your leadership um, capacity leadership capabilities with hopes of returning back home and transforming the narrative of Africa Hmm. and that's what I'm here for you know the program is um, the program is for people aged between 25 and 35 so when I say I'm lucky, I really mean it because I have been. Because no you're not right. 25 yet. No, not yet. I'm three. And, <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, you know, that, the fact that I'm here, it's, um, I'm extremely lucky. So so the program paid for you to come over. Yeah.
1: And how many days have you been here?
0: I have been here since, um, well, I think about 13 days.
1: 13 days. So not quite two weeks. Yeah. Is the United States everything you expected?
0: Uh, no. No. <laughs>
1: What surprised you?
0: Um, firstly, you know I'm in San Francisco. Obviously, um, my the whole concept of things in my mind, I'm like, okay, this is the place where everything's happening super quick. Obviously, things are the pace is extremely faster. But you know, seeing homeless people, um, seeing you know just just a different side of things where you know you don't really get to see this on TV. Mm. You know, um, that was quite a shocker because you know obviously my mind you know this is my first time in the united states you know looking at what i see on tv i didn't think i would come and see that many homeless people right right um that in itself but also just um visiting different communities especially the african-american communities that i visited and hearing the stories that i was told by you know our hosts of the things that went on the things that continue to go on um in those communities was really a mind opener because. Like what? Well like um, people you know black people getting shot, um, um, cops pulling black people over um, the things that I've seen and I try my best to to say okay maybe you know maybe there's a, maybe there's a reason why somebody was pulled over But that in itself was a shock. You know, it's something that I'm learning, beginning to see the different side of things.
1: Um, Did you not expect that? Uh, I mean, I I imagine the uh, protests and the social unrest in communities in the U.S. must have somehow leaked into even the Hollywood-stylized picture of what America is like.
0: Okay, so I listen to rap music right? Right. So, of, like, Jay-Z is obviously <laughs> my favorite rapper, so I okay, to yeah. his story. Obviously, I had a picture. Okay. But when people speak, of, I'll just take it back, when people speak of Africa, and how, like, um it's, you know, the narrative, like, to Bush. I know living in, you know, living in Africa right now, that it's different. You know, we have young people who are living very well. You know, we have mm-hmm. millionaires, and now billionaires, right? So it's like, not what people think. So I tried my best to not you know, follow the stereotype to do what has been done to Africa and say, okay, that's
1: oh, right, pretty right, much right. it. So, so yeah, you had heard that, but you thought, well, I'm not sure how much yeah. of that is really true. Yeah,
0: it's like the press, right? right like, right. S- s- maybe it's just to get a story, yeah. you know. So I tried my best to not, not get swayed. You know? So, you know, just visiting. And it's obviously not everybody. You know, they're obviously very exceptional um, people who I've met as well mm-hmm. from those communities. But just hearing and seeing those things firsthand has been Um, mind open.
1: What's been the difference that you've seen between communities you visited? So uh, it sounds like you've been through Oakland and (laughs) you you probably spent more time in Oakland than a lot of Americans who live in the Bay Area, frankly. Uh, (laughs) Now you tell me that? (laughs) Yeah, you know, people who live in San Francisco, the Peninsula, San Mateo, etc., they don't necessarily get out to Oakland that much. So um, what have you seen that uh, about the way different communities live, and how does it yeah. line up with the way different communities live uh, where you're from? Because you had a, a, an experience at seven years old going from one community to another. Yeah.
0: Okay, so um, just for perspective, to you know people who may be listening from back home, um, I've been to Oakland, which is um, very urban, I would say, um, mm-hmm. if that's the correct word. Sure. And I've been to Menlo Park and Palo Alto. Uh huh. Right. Which is? Two different worlds. <laughs> I, I was like, D- are we in a different country? Right? <laughs> Beca- <laughs> because on one end, I had people saying, no, don't walk, don't walk late at night. You know. In don't Oakland. Walk, in Oakland. Yeah. Um, in certain parts of Oakland, don't walk late at night. And I was telling one of my friends, I was like, hey, J. Cole's performing next week uh, in Menlo Park. I mean, in, in Oakland. It's like, uh, no, I'm not going there. And she's, she's a, she lives in San Francisco. I'm like, why? She's like, no, I've had people um she she was telling me a story this morning actually how at a traffic light she her friend had to literally drive through a red light because somebody was running to a car in oakland Mm. and you know in menlo park it's like and palo alto it's like wow this is where the billionaires live (laughs) right and it's like they're not so far apart so it's just seeing that kind of diversity whereas back at home you can kind of see like okay there's a transition. People are mixing, right? We have everybody knows everybody, right? Mm-hmm. We have a mix of things. At least um, where I grew up, you know, and where my grandma, um, where my grandma lived, completely different. So I would say, you know, even if there are two different worlds, we'd still kind of mix and and yeah. and um, and work together and, and do things together. Where it's here, I do feel like there's a gap mm. between the people in Oakland versus the people in Palo Alto. It's like Where's the conversation? It's not really taking place. But again, I'm very new here, and uh, most of it has just been shaped um, by my views in the last um, 13 days.
1: Sometimes it takes somebody to come fresh to something, (laughs) right? To to shed light on it, because I mean, I know I've been in these kinds of communities for so long, where there are stark differences between, you know, a, a, a city that's just five miles away or 10 miles away from from another city or town that. I think that's just the way it is. So to hear somebody come and say, "Well, you know, I actually know where I'm from," uh, we have different communities, but there's not this stark divide. It's interesting to me.
0: And also, the um, so I, I, we're, I had community service for two days at Glide, um, which is the church, I believe. And seeing that many um, homeless people, look, back at home, the people who are staying in the streets are either you know have a mental. Um, you know, challenge or something, but back at home everybody's taking care of everybody, Mm. right? Everybody's taking care of everybody and we kind of have that thing where you can't see your family member or somebody staying in the streets. It's very unheard of to see somebody who is perfectly normal um, and is staying in the streets. So it was like, like, okay, we have our problems in terms of economy, but there's that sense of togetherness. It's like I know today that if anything ever happened, I have family who i can go to and that was like looking at that it was in my mind i was like where is family but different communities right so that was also something that was a mind opener
1: so what's next for musango logistics um you have investment what what are you what are you looking for to take you to the next level
0: okay so um Musanga is a three-three-three strategy. So within the next three years, we um, we're going to have our actually now it's two years. We've been saying three years, <laughs> but, but we're going to have our office our first um, launch outside of Zambia. Um, outside is, of Zambia. Yeah, that is after we've um, obviously got into the major cities outside of Zambia. And the three years following that, after we have a stronghold in the southern region, going to launch outside of southern Africa, right? And the three years following that. Our goal, and God willing, is to have our first office outside of Zambia, outside of Africa, and um, so that is kind of the three-three-three strategy um, that we we live by on a day-to-day basis, and um, you know, so being here is obviously finding ways that we can deliver a better experience to our customers, who really make this whole thing work. Mm-hmm. Finding ways to deliver more and more um, a better customer experience. You know, whether it's our app, how can we make it more user-friendly because we're not just building something for Zambia. We're building something for the whole continent. So we're testing it in Zambia because if we fail, you know, it's like, hey guys, come on. (laughs) But, you know, we don't, we won't really have that kind of, um, that opportunity in different parts of Africa. So we need to get it right um, in
1: Zambia first. My thanks to Njavo Mutambo. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed, and please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, that's fortknox.com slash YouTube. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter. You'll see video from these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook or Twitter and search for John Fort and you know what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot And as always, thank you for lending an ear.